Well, you can open your Bibles to Jonah chapter 1. Jonah chapter 1, that's the book that we will begin this morning. And I believe by the Lord's providence that he is directing us to. And um, if you don't have a Bible, there's one in the seat pocket around you. Please do grab one because you're going to want to follow along in the word with us. So grab a Bible somewhere around you. And uh, if you're thumbing through the Bible, you're trying to find Jonah. I know it's difficult. Um, It happened to me the last time I preached Jonah, and that would be bad news if the preacher can't find the book, right? Um, Not that I don't know where it is, but that it's just so short, right? So when you're thumbing through it um, and you're shuffling through, to make a point of reference for you, it's the fifth minor prophet, okay? So you got major prophets. They're just called major because they're longer books. Uh, They're not up in the majors. The other ones are still waiting to be called up, right? Um, They're just longer. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations, Ezekiel, Daniel. And then you have the minor prophets. They're just shorter books. So after the major prophets, you can find those pretty easily. Open Isaiah, and you can find that easily. After Daniel, it's five more books, and then you'll find Jonah. It's a small little book, only four chapters, usually probably in your Bible, only two pages or so. Um, And that's all after Psalms and Proverbs. So just making reference for your points for yourself helps. But uh, if you remember a few months ago, I did go through the book of Jonah, um, just verses one through three. And, uh, uh, of chapter one and, um, and, and we covered a lot of material in just one sermon. Um, and I'm going to be covering some of that again, since it's been so long, I'll reintroduce some of that. Um, but this morning we'll really begin the exposition of this book for us. And this will just be a three week series. Okay. A three week series. And I know God will, will use this in your life and, uh, he's used this book, uh, in my life. Actually, um, to give you a little insight, uh, he used this book really when he called me, me and my family to, and the, the Wiles and our team to come here. At least in my life, I still have in my home this wooden whale, uh, that's sitting on, on the dresser, um, in my, uh, family room. And, uh, it, it's a reminder. It's a reminder to me of God's call through his word when he called us to come and plant uh, this church. And so we're going to be covering really the first scene of this book, which is chapters one through two uh, this morning. Um, chapter three begins in the same way that chapter one does. And so you can see really a natural division there. Uh, you can really divide this book simply into two portions, chapters one and two, and then chapters three and four. And, uh, and really um, at the end of chapter two, uh, um, you see kind of the same pattern that you began to see in chapter one. You see the call of God and the results. And then you see in chapter three, the call of God and then the results. And so it really follows the same pattern. It's the commission and the result. Um, and so we're going to cover this first scene today, chapters one through two, and uh, we'll divide the second scene into two weeks, uh, chapter three, and then chapter four. And uh, I'll tell you why in a little while, but Lord willing. And so now before we read um, this but uh, this first two chapters uh, in just a moment, I want to give you some insight that's really important for you to know as we begin this book. And I really want you to just um, think about this, let this marinate in your mind as we're reading. That's why I want to tell you this before we read and then let it marinate in your mind as we're continuing to go through this book. And really that just important insight is this. The theme of this book and the topic, the, the point of this book is not mainly about Jonah. Uh, th- this book is not mainly about Jonah. And on the surface, yes, Jonah gets the most stage time, right? Um, which he probably 
would like. And on the surface, it looks like it's about him. But this book is not about Jonah. This book is about God. This book is about the God of the universe. It's about him. This whole thing is meant to force your focus upon God. That's the point here. Uh, God is the, the point of the, this book. This book is named after Jonah, but that's simply just a reference to the content of the book. This is a story uh, who a man named Jonah is what makes this distinct from maybe every other book. Really, every book in the Bible could be called God, right? Um, but Jonah and his story is what makes this book distinct. But the book is about the sovereign God of the universe. It's about God and it's about his sovereign grace. Which is why I've entitled this series, Jonah and the Sovereign Grace of God. Jonah and the Sovereign Grace of God. That's what I'm calling this series. And it'll be up on the screen for you in just a moment. Jonah and the Sovereign Grace of God. And it really should be called this. It really should be called the Sovereign Grace of God, dot, 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 oh yeah, and Jonah. Right? But we're going to leave Jonah above the grace of God, which is where he thinks he belongs anyway. Right? But God's sovereign grace, this is what this book is about. Let me explain that in just for just a moment. God is gracious. He's merciful. He is compassionate. He is slow to anger. This is this great God who saves people. This is the grace of God. And God is the sovereign creator, sustainer, ruler, owner, judge of all things. And God, putting those two together, directs his grace anywhere he sees fit. He's the ruler, creator, sustainer, judge. He holds the standard. He holds all things together. And he is gracious, merciful, slow to anger abounding in steadfast love, and he directs his grace however and to whomever he sees fit. That's what this book is about. And really, you and I are, as God's people, really are the result of God's sovereign grace. And we should recognize his sovereignty. We should submit to his sovereignty, his sovereign, gracious will. And we should seek to have the same hearts as God, to have hearts of grace, to have hearts of mercy who want goodness for others. And so let's get into this. We're going to start by reading Jonah chapters 1 through 2, and then uh, we'll move into the exposition of it. Jonah chapters 1 through 2. Follow along as I read. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it. For their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish away from the presence of the Lord. But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea. And there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. Then the mariners were afraid, and each cried out to his God, and they hurled the cargo that was on the ship into the sea to lighten it for him. 
But Jonah had gone down into the inner parts of the ship and had laid down and was fast asleep. So the captain came and said to him, what do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. And they said to one another, come, let us cast lots that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. So they cast lots and the lot fell on Jonah. And they said to him, tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What is your occupation? Where do you come from? What is your country? And what people are you? And he said to them, I'm a Hebrew and I fear the Lord. Yahweh, the God of heaven, who made the sea and dry land. Then the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, what is this that you have done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. And they said to him, what shall we do to you that the sea may quiet down for us? For the sea grew more and more tempestuous. And he said to them, pick me up and hurl me into the sea, for I know it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. Nevertheless, the men rode hard to get back to dry land, but they could not, for the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. Therefore, they called out to the Lord, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life and lay not on us innocent blood. For you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. So they picked up Jonah and they hurled him into the sea and the sea ceased from its raging. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord, his God, from the belly of the fish, saying, I called out to the Lord in my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice, for you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded me. All your waves and all your billows passed over me. Then I said, I am driven away from your sight, yet I shall again look upon your holy temple. The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. The weeds were wrapped around my head at the roots of the mountains. I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. Yet you brought up my life from the pit. Oh, Lord, my God, when my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord and my prayer came to you into your holy temple. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And the Lord spoke to the fish and it vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. What a great couple chapters. Full of adventure, keeps you moving, keeps you in suspense. Now let me tell you what you're seeing in these two chapters. You're seeing really God's gracious pursuit 
and you're seeing Jonah's rebellious rejection. And so this really starts here in the book to show you God's sovereignty. It really starts to show you that God is in control. He carries out everything here. And so I've really entitled today God's gracious pursuit. God's gracious pursuit. That's the title of today because you see in God's sovereign grace that he is graciously pursuing by his own choice. He is graciously pursuing by his own choice. Listen, God commissions a man by his grace, right? Jonah doesn't have to be part of God's plan. God's not obligated to pick Jonah, to use Jonah. God chooses Jonah to proclaim a message to sinners. He doesn't have to go save these sinners. That's an act of his grace. When Jonah chooses to reject God's word, God pursues the man by his grace. He could have just let him go into destruction, into the abyss. That's an act of grace. God then disciplines the man so that he has a change of heart eventually. And that's an act of God's grace. Discipline of the Lord to change his heart, to pursue the man. He doesn't have to do that. Then God along the way saves some bystanders. He doesn't have to do that. It's his own sovereign choice to save these mariners, these sailors who are involved. I'm giving away part of the story. Spoiler alert. And then he rescues the man out of the discipline that he puts him in. And he doesn't have to do that. That could just be the end for him. But he does so by his grace. And all of this grace will come by his sovereign choice. Why does he do it? Why is he pursuing the man, using the man? Why is he going to save a sinful people? Why is he going to save the mariners? Why is he going to discipline his man? Why is he going to rescue his man? Because he chooses to do so. That's sovereignty. He doesn't need to use the man. He hasn't earned the right. He isn't any better than anybody else. Anything that he has as a prophet comes from God. So he's got nothing to boast about. Anything he is, his position, his commission is simply God's sovereign choice. And you know, that's true of us. Any position or commission that you have, you say, well, why am I worthy to have it? Because God chose by his sovereign grace to put you there. And that's it. That's all the confidence that you have. And so you serve the Lord with all of his heart because he's told you to do so. You don't have to earn it. It's just who he's called you to be and what he's called you to do. And so this is the, the, the prophet who really shouldn't be in the position he's in. It's really more so a sign that God uses the unqualified and the incompetent and the unskilled, right? The least of these. And so, but God does. He uses him by his sovereign choice. God also doesn't have to send a message of warning and judgment to sinners in Nineveh. You know, that's an act of grace. Without judgment and without warning, people are left to their own ways. And that's actually in the Bible, God's judgment. When God sends his message of warning and judgment, that's God's what? Grace to turn them from their wicked ways 
and to find salvation. He doesn't have to do that. Why does he do it? It's his sovereign choice. And he could let them die in their sin. Also, God isn't obligated to perform his work of salvation to anyone in this story. But every time you see salvation occur in this story, which is twice, that's an act of sovereign grace. That's regeneration by the Holy Spirit, even though the scripture is not telling us here. It tells us in other places. Anyone who turns from their sin and trusts in this true, one and true God is doing so because God is working in their hearts. And so he could take this life. He could take the, the lives in these stories. He, he could let them go their own way. He doesn't have to save them. And by the way, as we move into chapter three and God gives a second chance, that's an act of grace by his sovereign what? Choice. So really, this is on full display. God's sovereign grace is on full display here. And that's what God's wanting to show here. He's wanting to show a prophet whose heart doesn't match his, doesn't understand the sovereignty and the grace of God, doesn't submit to it or want it to be true. And yet God is showing us and showing Jonah, this is who I am. When you read an Old Testament narrative, one of the questions you ask that helps you get to the main point is what does this tell us about God? And this is what God is aiming to show us here, his sovereign grace. And before we just move to these points, let me just tell you, This sovereign grace is the the greatest reality of your life. God's sovereign choice that's introduced in these opening chapters, it has been played out in your life. Your position before God in Christ is a result of sovereign grace. God sovereignly by his own choice, because he is gracious and good, has come to you, called you out of darkness into light. And listen now. God's sovereign grace is still active in your life. It's still active in your life. God calls you. He gifts you. He uses you. He grows you. He sanctifies you. He works in you. He forgives you. He protects you. He frees you. He provides for you. All of this is an act of sovereign grace. By God's own choice, pouring out grace in your life because of who he is. So the question really is, will you submit to his grace in your life? Will you, will you submit to his sovereignty in your life? Will you serve him in this way? Will your heart match his heart in everything? Oftentimes, God may gift you in some certain way by his sovereignty, by his grace to use you. And you know what? Our hearts are usually proud. Our hearts don't match his. His sovereign grace has come into our lives and we will serve ourselves, not submit and have our own way. We need to, as his sovereign grace actively moves in our lives, we have to submit and have the same heart he does. And that's Jonah's problem here, isn't it? He doesn't. So let's move into this. What we see in these first two chapters is simple. I'm going to divide it into two. We see God's call in verse 1 through 16. The Hebrew Bible ends the chapter after 16, which I think is appropriate. And then we have, secondly, God's compassion in verses 17 of chapter 1 through chapter 2, verse 10. We see the call, and then we see the compassion. And I'm going to set up a a good amount of historical information here, not because I want to make this overly academic, but because this is the only time to do it for you to really understand what's going on here. But hopefully, 
We can just move through this. So we see God's call and God's compassion. Let's start with the call. Verse one, we're launched into the book with the word now. And really, this is a unique word because it really gives the impression that there's something more going on. This is, this is atypical of the beginning of a book. It really is translated as then. And so it's almost as if we are in a larger narrative as we're moving into this book. Like then, as if something happened before this. And we're not given this typical introduction. When you see like the book of Isaiah start, the vision of Isaiah, the son of Amos, right? It's, it's just this, this grand introduction to the book in which we are starting something very fresh here. Uh, or like the book of Jeremiah that says the words of Jeremiah to the son of Hilkiah. Instead, it's like we're progressing along in some greater narrative and you already know we are, right? This is happening within God's greater redemptive narrative. Uh, he's doing something in history. What is it? Well, Israel, which Jonah is from Galilee, he's, he, he's in Jerusalem. He's part of God's people. He's a prophet of God, right? Israel, uh, they had uh, not been very good, right? Most of the time. And, uh, and they suffered really great torment. They, they experienced great loss. And it was because the sin of their people, it was because the sin of their leaders, really what happened at this time in, in history is their borders really shrunk. And, and so Israel is fading away. And the Assyrians, the big, bad, bold Assyrians have taken control of the borders in the Near East. And so Second Kings 14.27 says this, the affliction of Israel was very bitter. And this is the time of Jonah prophesying. Second Kings 14.27. The affliction of Israel was very bitter and there was none left, bond or free, and there was none to help Israel. Israel's in a bad state. And yet, you know what God's response is to Israel's disobedience? Sovereign grace. He, in this time, as they are disobedient and the Syrians come in, turns things around and extends Israel's borders beyond anything that they've ever had. Just an act of grace. You got Jeroboam II as the king, and this is now the, the greatest extent, which Jeroboam is, is not good, a bad leader, corrupts the entire nation. But now you have the greatest uh, uh, you have the, 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 the largest borders since really the time of Solomon and David, David and Solomon. And so Jonah's a prophet during this time. And what Jonah predicts is this great expansion. So Jonah's bringing good news to Israel. Everybody loves him. He's bringing good news. Second Kings 14, 26, you see it. And, and that's really the only time we see Jonah. And we know that Jonah's a true prophet because one of that is, is that if you have the gift of prophecy, right? You have to be what? 100% accurate 100% of the time. Okay. And so that's a true prophet prophesying good news to Israel. Yet, even though their borders extended, you know what was going on in their hearts? Darkness. Israel was, this was a bad time for Israel spiritually. And Hosea and Amos were also prophets during this time. And what they predicted was what would happen years later after this story in Jonah. So Jonah preaches to the Ninevites. Ninevites repent. Great. God's mercy, salvation. About a hundred years later, 
is going to happen what Hosea and Amos are talking about, which is that they're going to come and conquer Israel again, which they'll never recover from. Assyrians are going to take over and they're really never going to recover again. And God's going to judge the, the, uh, the Ninevites at that point. And so here's the deal. They've been brutal to the Israelites, the Assyrians have, which by the way, Nineveh is the capital of Assyria. Jonah predicts that in the future, they're going to take over Israel again. But in the midst of this time right now, Israel is having great success because of God's sovereign grace. And so this is what's happening at this time in Israel's history. And at this time is when God comes to Jonah in this point in redemptive history and says, I want you to go to the Ninevites, the capital of Assyria, and I want you to preach my message to them. So when I tell you that the very first word of this book now or then is important, it is. God is continuing a story that's going on outside of this. And in verse one, what happens? The word of the Lord comes to Jonah. So in any number of possible ways, God speaks to his prophet. This is a commission. This is not a suggestion. This is the word of God to Jonah, right? And it includes his saving plan. And what does God say to Jonah? Well, we'll see in a minute. But first we're told that he's the son of Amittai. We don't know anything about his father. We know nothing more than second Kings tells us. And also Jesus uses Jonah as an illustration, right? To prove his own uh, deity is his, uh, to talk of his literal resurrection. But here's what God says to Jonah. Verse two, arise, go. These are two imperatives. Listen now, arise, go. These are two imperatives, which means command, command. Right, which basically is uh, implying do what I tell you and do it immediately. This is not a suggestion. Uh, combined, they're very firm to give a sense of what he's to do with immediacy. What are the instructions? Verse two, go to this great city. Now, great is not meaning they're awesome. Great means they're big, right? God has used... This uh, uses this phrase in a number of ways in the book. You got a great wind, you got a great storm, you got a great fish, okay? And you got a great city. This is big. This is, there's a lot going on there and their sin is also great. But God calls them to go to Nineveh. Now listen, this is the second really picture of God's gracious, sovereign pursuit. First, you have him calling Jonah. God doesn't need him, but God is graciously making him part of his plan. Now you got the picture of the second gracious sovereign pursuit, which is go to the Ninevites. Like, no, let them die in their sin. Why, God, would you choose to go to to send me to Nineveh? To preach your message. I, I mean, I, I can kind of relate to what Jonah's feeling at this point, right? So you have two, that's why I titled this God's gracious pursuit. So far, you have sovereign grace in, shown through God's pursuit twice so far. Jonah and the Ninevites. Now, let me just tell you this. The Assyrian Empire, it was built by Nimrod, Genesis chapter 10, and uh, makes sense. And uh, it's a pivotal city. By the way, Nimrod's also the one who... Um, 
who built the Tower of Babel. And so you can just understand what the city would be like from the one who built it, right? Noah's grandson or great-grandson. And, uh, and so really this is a, this is modern day Iraq. Um, this is east of the Tigris River, 550 miles north of Samaria. It's inland. And so this would be, this would take Jonah at a normal pace of 15 to 20 miles a day. It would take Jonah more than a month to get there. And, uh, and Jonah's in Jerusalem. And so here's what God's commanding Jonah to do. Verse two, call out against it. What is he called to do? He's called to preach. He's called to, to preach. Go preach to the Ninevites, right? And again, that's an act of sovereign grace. Remember when John the Baptist, he told the Pharisees and the Sadducees, you brood of vipers, Matthew 3, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? And then he says, because you've received this warning, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Warning of the wrath to come is a grace. When you hear us every week and someone's preaching the gospel to you and warning you of the wrath to come and to turn to Christ and avoid God's judgment, you shouldn't say, how dare you tell me that? You should say, thank you for telling me that. What an act of grace. And so this is a grace of God that he's sending this message of warning and of impending judgment to Nineveh through this prophet and why? Because the evil has come up upon God. Meaning this, it's at capacity. It's crossed the line. I don't know what that line is, nor do you. But for God, it's crossed the line. And uh, they are now moving towards the position of having no more opportunity for repentance. And so, go. Speak my message. What are the Ninevites like? Ninevites like, I already told you, but let me just give you a couple more specific. Zephaniah 2.15 describes them as exultant. And um, they say things like, I am and there's no one else. Nahum chapters 2 verse 3 tell about the Ninevites. They made people their prey, it says. They were full of lies and plunder. They were full of whores and seductive prostitutes. They betrayed entire nations. They were full of greedy merchants. They were brutal, clear, uh, cruel. Archaeology tells us that the Ninevites filleted their victims alive, scalped their captives. Um, they tear, tore off the lips and the hands of their victims, and they made piles of skulls to look at. They were unrivaled in their idolatry. They had gods like Habu, Ashur, Adad and Ishtar. So this is the people whom God is sending his message of grace to. Verse three, we see a but. Jonah defies God. We see this irrational response. Now you might say, we're not gonna get through this. Well, this sets us up for all the information. Then we'll move through the rest rather quickly. But let me just tell you this. Jonah arose. You see it in verse three. It says, but Jonah rose. And really, you see this clear rejection. He rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa to find a ship going to where? Tarshish. He paid the fare, went down into it and got uh, to go with them to go to where? Tarshish away from the presence of the Lord. I mean, this is repeated three times so that the reader understands completely. God calls him to go to Nineveh. He goes to Tarshish. Don't miss this, right? And really what's pretty um, interesting here is that as you begin this, the, the word is kind of can be translated but or can be translated so in verse three. And so when you see this, it says, God called him, go to Nineveh. 
And if translated as so in verse three, so Jonah rose and went to Tarshish. It's almost as if you would expect Nineveh because the sovereign God of the universe just said, arise and go to Nineveh. And so Jonah did it. No, so Jonah rose and went to Tarshish. It's just highlighting his, his defiance. That's, that's exactly what it is. He goes the exact opposite direction. What he does is goes down to Joppa, verse 3, seaport, to take him 2,000 miles west to flee from the presence of the Lord. You say, well, doesn't he know that God is everywhere? He does, because I read Psalm 139 earlier, right? The Israelites know this psalm, that God is, Yahweh is not a local deity, He's not in one place. He's everywhere. They know this. So as we read earlier, it says, where can I go from your spirit or where can I flee from your presence? And so what does this mean? Jonah's just rebelling against God and he's irrational at this point. He knows this. This is willful rebellion. He goes to Nineveh. Now, let me just show you where this is at real quick. Um, Tarshish is modern day Gibraltar. He's at Jerusalem. He goes down to Joppa and he's supposed to be going the other way, which is modern day Iraq. So you can't read there, I guess, but see where that uh, indicator is and where Jonah is. That's Jerusalem. He goes down to Joppa and he's heading to Tarshish, which is over here. Modern day Gibraltar. And all he had to do was go up inland to the right there. And go to Nineveh. And that's modern day Iraq. And um, so Jonah is going as far as he can go from God's plan. Right? As far as he can go. What's the reasonings? Well, this is where we kind of close out this information and we can move this quick. The reasoning, bitterness. He's a racist. He has lack of compassion, pride. He, he knows that if they hear this message, they're going to repent. He hates them for what he did to their people. It's going to shame Jerusalem because if they repent, what does Jerusalem look like who's not repenting? And God also knows, I mean, Jonah also knows what the future holds. The Assyrians, because he prophesied, the Assyrians are going to overtake God's people, like I told you, a hundred years later. So now is he going to just facilitate that by them turning from their sin and staying alive just so they can kill God's people later on, right? All of this is the reasoning. And how do we know the reason? Well, it just tells us explicitly another spoiler alert, but jump to chapter four, verse two. Chapter four, just verse two. You can take the map off. And it says this, he prayed to the Lord and said, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. For I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Jonah knows God is sovereign. He directs his grace wherever he wants. And he is gracious enough to save lost people. He doesn't want them to be saved. He's not submitting to God's sovereign grace. He doesn't have the same heart that God does. This is pretty messed up for Jonah to have a heart like that. 
right? And so God's third great sovereign pursuit. The first was to even call Jonah. The second was to even save Nineveh. And now the third, he's going to pursue this man who's rebelling against him, right? Here we go. So what happens? Jonah goes down to Tarshish, pays the fare to go with the boat, away from the presence of the Lord, totally irrational. Now look at the sovereignty shown here. This is creator God. He's not only the one who can judge Nineveh because he holds the standard of righteousness. He is not only the one who will call the prophet and tell him what to do because he is in charge of the prophet. It is not only the one who can save the sailors and the Ninevites, but he is the creator and the ruler of all things. Even the winds and the waves obey him. Verse four, but the Lord hurled a great wind. This is a supernatural hurricane, 90 miles an hour. This is supernatural, and the mariners know it. Upon the sea, there was a mighty tempest on the sea so that the ship threatened to break up. So the, ship, the ship is shaking and starting to break up. Then the mariners were afraid, and each cried out to his God. I mean, mariners who live on the sea, for them to be afraid, right? But they know this is supernatural, so they all cry out to their God. This, this is not a normal storm. We, we live on the water. And, and so we know this is supernatural. Everyone call out to your God. Let's see. Let, maybe we can kind of pin the tail on the donkey and hit one of them and they'll stop the storm. And so they call out and they start hurling the cargo off the ship. Maybe we can lighten the load. And Jonah goes down to the inner part of the ship, lays down, and is fast asleep. I mean, there's a bunch of different commentaries on this aspect here. But, I mean, either he's totally apathetic, totally irrational, not thinking. He just doesn't care. I mean, what is going on with this man? But he is fast asleep. So the captain comes to him. I mean, you would ask this question, right? Why are you sleeping? Call out. Perhaps God, your God, perhaps your God's the one, right? And he'll give us a thought and we won't perish. They said to one another, let's cast lots. This is another just miracle, right? As we see in the scriptures during the time of the writing of the scriptures, the apostles, the Old Testament, I mean, he's cast lots. This is, you can put this casting lots into the category of miracles because God's, will would be shown at this point. We have God's will now in his word that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. So they cast lots. The lot falls on who? Jonah. God's going to make sure everybody knows it's his fault. And they tells us, you know, tell us, he says, because they know it's Jonah. So all the mariners look at the Jonah and say, now give us the specifics. Whose account has this evil come upon us? What's your occupation? Where do you come from? What is your country? And what people are you? And look at how irrational Jonah is. While disobeying the creator of the heaven and earth, so he knows these waves and these winds are coming from him. He knows he can't flee from his presence because God is everywhere. And yet he is doing so while at the same time saying, I fear Yahweh, the one and only true God. And... I'm a follower of him. I'm one of his people. He made the sea and the dry land. He, he knows he can't go anywhere. He knows that this storm is because of him. And he's saying, I'm a follower of him. And yet 
I'm running from him. And now the men are exceedingly afraid because they know that this is the one true God who is now causing all of this to happen. They say, what have you done? Fleeing from the presence of the Lord. He told that uh, they said to him, what shall we do? And he said, it's my fault. Basically, verse 12, pick me up, throw me into the sea. I literally I'd rather die than obey God at this point. Throw me into the sea. If I die, you'll be off the hook. This is all because of me. He knows it. He knows it. This is a bad place to be, people. I'm disobeying God and I know it. If it's not for the sovereign grace of God, you're one step away from destruction, destroying your whole life. Turn back. Turn back. Don't follow through. You're one step away from destroying your life. Turn back. And so the sea grew more and more tempestuous. They know it's because of him. He says, pick me up, throw me into the sea. The men are, are here at this point trying to probably do the right thing. They're, they're rowing to see, can we just get out of this and not kill this man? If we throw him in, he's going to die. And, and they call out, Lord, Lord, right? Let us not perish for this man's life. And lay not on us innocent blood, for you, O Lord, have done what, what they, what, um, done as it has pleased you. Your sovereignty, you're in control, right? And here, I don't know the extent of this in verse 14 here, but it's explicitly telling us they call out to Yahweh. They ask for Yahweh to save them. They know that Yahweh is in control. They've seen the miracles. And I think here, based on the information, that these mariners come to salvation in Yahweh. They realize that he is the true God in control of everything. And they call out to him. They've thrown their lowercase g gods to the side. And they call out to Yahweh. And so imagine this. In the midst of God graciously and sovereignly pursuing Ninevites. In the midst of him graciously and sovereignly calling Jonah. In the midst of him graciously and sovereignly pursuing Jonah. Along the way, he also saves these mariners. What a gracious and sovereign God. His arm is not too short to save. And so the men feared the Lord exceedingly. After they hurled Jonah into the sea, the sea ceased And look at what they did then in verse 16. They offered another piece of evidence. They offered a what? Sacrifice. And they made vows to the Lord. They offer a sacrifice. They made vows to the Lord. That to me sounds like faith. They offer a sacrifice to him and they vow to live for him. Jonah's in the sea. At this point, this is where this chapter ends. Jonah is in the sea. And so this is God's, by the way, that was God's fourth gracious pursuit, saving the mariners. And so we're getting a behind the scenes look at God's sovereignty and his grace. When we come into these next verses, verses 17 of chapter one through chapter two, verse 10, where we see God's compassion. 
Not that he hasn't been compassionate the whole time, but now we see behind the scenes. We get a behind the scenes look, right? In verses, in verse 17 through uh, chapter one to, to verse 10 of chapter two, what's happening here, what you have to understand is Jonah, the, the, the fish is a savior. The fish isn't part of the discipline. Jonah's disciplined by being thrown into the sea. Jonah's falling to the bottom of the sea. God sends a fish. Why? Because of Jonah's repentance. While Jonah's in the belly of the fish, Jonah's recounting what he cried out while he was in the sea. And so now we're going to see what he cried out in the sea and how God responded. So verse 17, the Lord appointed this great fish to swallow Jonah. By the way, the book is also not about a fish, right? Though there is a fish. The book is about God. Every children's book, what's the, what's the highlight? The fish. We need to make the highlight God. And so Jonah's in the belly of the fish, right? By the way, the Hebrew word that's used here is not the Hebrew word for whale. So this is not a whale. We don't know what kind of fish this is. So if you're trying to disprove the book of Jonah, this is fiction because you can't be in a whale because of stomach acid, etc. Haven't you seen that God can do whatever he wants? And this is not a standard whale. This is some kind of fish that we don't know. He's in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. And Jonah prays this to the Lord from the belly of the fish. And he's recounting what he prayed while he was in the water. He prays or what happened while he was in the water. Jonah prayed to the Lord, his God, from the belly of the fish saying, when I was thrown into the water, basically, I called out to the Lord out of my distress. At that point, because of the discipline of God, Jonah is humbled. Jonah sees God rightly. He sees his sin rightly. He sees his disobedience as it is. I mean, isn't the discipline of God a grace? The discipline of God was God's sovereign grace in his life. When he was in the water and when he called out, God answered him. Out of the belly of Sheol, he cried and he, God heard the voice, his voice. Now look at God's sovereignty in this suffering and discipline. You, who's you? God. You, God, cast me into the deep. That's sovereignty. You cast me into the heart of the seas and the flood surrounded me. All your waves, God, all your billows, God, passed over me. I said, I am driven from your sight. Yet I shall again look upon your holy temple. The waters closed over me. This is what happened in the sea. The deep surrounded me. The weeds were wrapped around my head at the roots of the mountains. I mean, I was as low as you can go. I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. Yet you brought my life up from the pit. You heard me. You sent a fish. I'm in the fish's belly. I'm thankful you pulled me out of the storm, out of the waves, out of the deep. You heard my cry. You are a gracious God. And the only reason you answered my prayer is because you chose to. In your sovereignty and by your grace. When my life was fainting away, 
I remembered the Lord. My prayer came to you in your holy temple. He heard it. And look now, he's starting to think straight. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their steadfast, the hope of of steadfast love. Anyone who doesn't follow God, they're forsaking the love of God. What a gracious God. With a voice of thanksgiving, he says, I will sacrifice to you. Now look what he says. I'm ready to obey you. What I vowed, I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. God can direct his salvation wherever he wants. I'll just obey you and I'll just vow to serve you. You want your salvation to come to the Ninevites? I'm game. I'll follow you. But it took an act of discipline. And look what happens. The Lord speaks to the fish. After Jonah prays, he recounts what he said in the water and how God saved him. And now, by God's sovereign grace, the sixth aspect of God's pursuit here, he vomits Jonah upon dry land. Jonah probably smelled a little bit, maybe discolored. Maybe he had a fish bone in his hair. But in chapter three, God, by his sovereign grace, is going to recommission Jonah. And I'll tell you this, second chances, God doesn't have to give them. He doesn't have to. But if he does, he does so by sovereign grace. Because he chooses to. He's gracious. And so, as we close, what we can understand is God is sovereign. He's in control. He directs his grace wherever he wants. Our job is to serve him, submit to it, and match his heart. That's it. And really, this picture of sovereign grace is most most, most clearly shown in the gospel of Christ. And God is the creator, the ruler of all things. He's in control of all things. He's the judge. It's his righteous standard who has to be abided by and obeyed. And yet he is gracious and merciful. He directs his grace to people who don't deserve it and saves them from their destruction. What a great gospel we have. What a great God we have. And what a great picture we see here in this book. My prayer is that today you would respond to the gospel and you would respond to the sovereign grace of God in your life in a way that's obedient, submissive, and matches his heart. Let's pray. Father, we come and we ask you by your grace to cause this word from you to work in us. As we respond by taking of the Lord's table, Lord, let us not forget your message here. Let this message be what drives us to your table, what drives us to our response. And let us live continually for you. In Jesus' name, amen.